This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 19th of October. And on the programme today, we discussed flying taxis. We got analysis from aviation analyst Mike Rudolph about whether we really could see them in the skies of Abu Dhabi by 2026, because that is what the Emirate has recently announced. We also chatted to a company that's planning to sell personalised flying machines for less than $200,000 in the United States from as soon as June. Meanwhile, as four recruitment agencies serving domestic workers are closed in Al Ain over the last two weeks, that was because they were operating illegally, we discussed the laws protecting workers' rights here in the UAE. We spoke to two guests on that topic, Labour attaché John Rio Bautista. He's from the Philippine Overseas Labour Office here in Dubai and the Northern Emirates. And also employment lawyer Ali Al-Assad from Denton's Middle East, who took your questions. Plus, as Abu Dhabi launches what it is calling the world's biggest racing league for self-driving cars, we spoke to the organiser, Thomas McCarthy, about the aims behind the race. We are coming up to the final days of Jitex, and I think it's fair to say that the fanciful tech stories are coming thick and fast. And it might seem like there's a flying car story every single year at Jitex. But what's interesting is that the deadlines for when we're likely to see them in the sky do seem to be getting closer and closer. Now, the latest headline I've seen is out of Abu Dhabi, where the capital's investment office, ADIO, and US-based Archer Aviation have both agreed to start air taxi operations in 2026. That's only three years away or two and a half, you know, depending when you're measuring it from. So joining me now to give me a little bit of analysis on this deal is our favourite light craft or aviation expert, Mike Rudolph. Mike, tell me your reaction to this news. Do you think realistically we will start to see these types of taxis flying in the skies of Abu Dhabi by 2026? This technology is still so brand new and every single day people are learning from both the the snags, in other words, the little things that are still going wrong, and then also recognizing the capabilities and that's something that we're going to be thriving on in the future. So when we predict operations to start in 2026, there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that have to be in place. And number one from them would be the regulatory certification of the vehicle. So, and the certification would mean that the UAE GCAA would endorse this vehicle to fly in airspace in and around the UAE. So to start with, I do believe that it will be what they call a piece of segregated airspace where they will carry out trials and where the, you know, the chances of anything going wrong won't impact the safety of the general public. 2026, it's a challenge. It would be fantastic if the UAE is ready for that challenge in 2026. But obviously, to get there, there's a number of pieces of the puzzle that have to be in place. So Abu Dhabi says they're planning to work with Archer Aviation to bring yeah. flying taxis by 2026. What would you yeah. expect these flying taxis to look like? Would they be piloted or would they be autonomous? 
So as a kickoff, I would presume that they are going to have a safety pilot on board. The safety pilot would provide for the recovery of the vehicle should something go wrong and to carry out a safe landing so that no one is injured and no property is damaged. Taxi obviously being an opportunity of of high frequency. In other words, you step out onto the street, you should be able to pick up a taxi that will take you from point A to point B. So it will definitely be a local point to point. But the challenge is going to be if we have two occupants on board, let's say it's going to be one plus a safety pilot, the restriction is going to be on the weight. Realistically, the first step will be to get the craft made legal. Everyone needs to be reassured that it's not going to fall out of the sky, that it's not going to crash. How long does it normally take to get one of these vehicles cleared by a country's federal aviation authority? So you mentioned that Abu Dhabi might be working with an American company. So the regulatory uh, requirements in America are slightly different to what they are, let's say, in Europe. America prescribes to the Federal Aviation Authority, and they and they have been going through the process of uh, certifying aircraft for many, many years. The big difference between this and a conventional aircraft is the propulsion system. Obviously, we're looking at something that will provide for clean energy, hence the fact that they are replacing the jet aviation fuel-powered turbine with a battery-powered option. So the testing would have to be multifaceted. So the craft is going to be subjected to many, many hours of scrutiny. When you look at a timeline, let's say from point A, in other words, the vehicle is rolled out and it's ready for its first test flight. The process for that is months and months of flights. Every single day, various weather conditions, various flight uh, conditions, etc. So to answer your question about how long would it take, this could take anything between one and three years, depending on just how complicated the vehicle is. And of course, remember, we're going into an unknown territory uh, where the talk is about autonomy, and that's going to be a challenge in itself. So far, we've only talked about the realities when it comes to the machine itself. We haven't even talked about the legislation that will be required to govern where and how these vehicles will be operated. And so you can imagine why, as a journalist who's been talking about the prospect of flying taxis on the radio for probably a good five years or so now, you can understand why I'm a little bit cynical that we're ever going to see these vehicles. Now, I know that you're very close to the Dubai authorities and and you've seen lots of different aviation companies cross your desk, so to speak. Do you feel like we're any closer? Do you think realistically we could see flying taxis? I don't know, if not by 2026, you know, before 2030. Yes. Yes. 2026, I do believe is still going to be a challenge. Because as the various vendors get closer and closer and closer to the finish line with reference to getting their vehicle certified and approved by the various aviation authorities, then the scrutiny is that much more. You know what it's like. So when you detail your car, it's always that last little bit that takes the most time. However, you mentioned the second date of 2030, which is uh, approximately seven years' time. I most definitely do believe that if not Dubai or maybe another emirate in the UAE will be well on its way to providing for this kind of aviation, if not already certified, then already going down the road of certification. So most definitely. And 
my goodness. I mean, as you say, we've been talking about this for long enough, and I, I really can't wait to see this come to fruition. Are there any particular companies that you would tip your hat towards? Are there certain companies that seem to be making good progress? Because it is worth mentioning that it hasn't happened in any other country yet. You know, no, there are no flying taxis anywhere in the world yet. That is quite correct. So we've read about and we've seen various video material of a number of vendors having the privilege to fly in in various uh, cities and countries and provide for what they call proof of concept. One of them was Volocopter. We were lucky enough to have them come out here and do a proof of concept flight when they were doing what they call high temperature trials. And it went off very, very well. The concept that they've got is working well. The other one is Jobby from Canada. Definitely a front runner. Those guys have kept at the at the grindstone through thick and thin, through COVID, through everything else. They've kept at it. And if I had to say which one I believe is a little bit ahead at this stage, I would say that Jobby from Canada has got a marginal advantage at this time to get their product in the air. That's aviation expert Mike Rudolph there speaking to us right here on the agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. And we are discussing outlandish tech and transport innovations on the show today, specifically flying cars. That is because Abu Dhabi's investment office, Adio, and US-based company Archer Aviation have agreed to start air taxi operations in 2026. But over in the United States, there's actually another company looking to sell personal flying cars to private individuals for only $200,000 as soon as June next year. They're an aviation company. They're called Pivotal. And they say their Helix craft seats one person and is about four metres square. And you don't even need a pilot's licence to fly it. Earlier, I spoke to their CEO, Ken Carklin, and he told me a little bit more about it. In the world of electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, there are dozens of really interesting, really clever designs. But we've taken a slightly different take on this, and we're very focused on what we call a personal air vehicle. And we're taking advantage of the company's aero architecture that they've been patiently developing for over 12 years now. This is a fourth generation that we're actually going to be going to market with. It's called the Helix. And it's a tandem wing tilt aircraft light EV tall that seats one. And I could probably teach you the basics of flying it in our simulator in a few hours. It's a very intentional in that it, it's hard to do bad things with it. Like you can't put it into a dive, for example. It has autonomy around precision landing and takeoff. And in the not distant future, it'll have autonomy around an automatic return to home. Once we've incorporated additional deconfliction figures to make sure that you can't run into another aircraft in flight and uh, you'll have a safe journey every time. It is very different than an air taxi though. So your typical air taxi has many control surfaces. It's much, much larger. They have either rotating wings or rotating motors that are allowing you to make that transition from vertical flight to horizontal flight. And we actually just tilt the whole aircraft. So as a operator, you learn to recline a bit when you're in hover and you sit all the way forward when you're in forward flight. That allows us to have 
about a dozen control surfaces on the entire aircraft, counting the eight rotors, rather than having 40 or so. And it keeps it lighter, more reliable and robust, and frankly, simpler and elegant in terms of the ability to learn to fly it, to operate it, and uh, to operate it safely. And am I right in thinking that these are now commercially available in the United States? Well, we have certainly sold and delivered aircraft. Commercially available might be a, a little bit of a stretch because we're not to our general sales release yet. We started in June, something that we called an early access program, where we painstakingly identified about a dozen friendly customers who wanted to be owners. And they also wanted to work with us, have a little patience with us as we developed the training, as we developed the support infrastructure to be able to support individual owners of these aircraft who are operating them on their own terms, on their own property. And I'm glad to report doing so very safely and having a great time doing it. In the United States, these fall under a, a special category called Part 103 Ultralights. And we've built dozens of them and flown tens of thousands of miles through the air. We've had over 6,500 test events, most of them remotely piloted. And that allows us to learn things faster without ever putting an operator at risk. So when you get to the next stage, I suppose, when you'll be selling them on the open market, so to speak, mm -hmm. what do you think the price point is going to be for these craft? It's not going to be out of reach of a lot of people. So we made an announcement. We committed that you'll be able to order a Helix at a base price of $190,000 and deliveries will commence on the 10th of June. So that portal will be opening up on the 9th of January, 24. And uh, you too can log on, make your 25% deposit and book your training slot depending on the committed delivery date of your aircraft. You want those two events to happen within a couple of weeks of each other. And the training right now is scoped to be about five to seven days and you have to demonstrate the skills. So around June next year in the States, you could end up with quite a lot of these craft buzzing around. Now, the immediate concern, and you can I know that was a pejorative word, but my immediate concern, anyone's immediate concern is, well, you know, what if the pilots start, frankly, flying them out of the sky into the ground and into people and into buildings? You immediately get into the, you know, who is policing the skies with these little craft going around? Well, again, we're, we're going to take uh, uh, operator proficiency and safety as absolute job number one to us. So these are all cloud-connected aircraft. And we have the ability to, and we do actually actively monitor the performance and the health of every single aircraft in our deployed fleet. After every flight, it's going to push many gigabytes of, of data up to the cloud. And, and we mine that data in our data lake, and, and we are able to predict when is a part looking like it's going to wear out? When is a motor drawing too much current? What does operator behavior look like in terms of how they're flying uh, in proximity to the ground, in proximity to people? In the United States, these fall under a, a special category called Part 103 ultralights. The Part 103 ultralight regulations you know, carve out very specific conditions you can operate this under. It's a G or unregulated, uncrowded airspace which anybody can find on an aeronautical chart. And that's one of the things you have to do when you come take your training. It is not over highly congested areas or crowds of people. And it's during daylight hours, visual flight rules. That means it's not raining, it's not foggy, and you can see for miles, which 
actually describes the weather and, and the airspace over most of the United States most of the time. So for city dwellers, this is probably not going to be their thing unless they've got a place in the country to go take it. But for lots of folks in suburban areas and lots of folks in rural areas, we have early adopters who are going to be using this for short hop travel. They're going to use it as their ride to work every day. That's a real thing. I mean, it just sounds ridiculously cool and ridiculously futuristic. And and I have to say, I've been talking about flying cars on the radio for about nine years now. And normally the dates are sort of quite far pushed out. They're like, yeah, in five years, yeah, in six years. But June (laughs) is really soon. Tell me what it's like to fly it. How you land it. Is it like a helicopter? Do you land like a helicopter or do you land like a plane? It's a little bit of both of those things because it's an electrically propulsed tandem wing multi-copter when it's when it's vertical you know it is nothing short of a joy to fly you feel like you're one with the aircraft it feels like an extension of your body it's like an iron man suit and you take off vertically in hover and you go up 20 30 40 50 100 feet and then you're going to pitch forward in high pitch hover and then eventually you transition to what we call cruise where the wings are basically parallel to the ground you're getting lots of lift it's very efficient to fly in that state. So it's actually very quiet and you just glide like you're on a piece of silk. It's amazing. And then landing, maybe you make a circle around where you're going to land and you approach it and then you can just position hold, you just stop. You just let go of the stick, stick neutral, you hover in place and you come straight down to where you want to land. It's uh, not difficult to learn how to fly, but it takes practice. It takes muscle memory, and we want to make sure that everyone who comes to Pivotal and acquires one of our light EV tall aircraft like the Helix has a safe and delightful experience, that they're very competent, and will also be coming up with ongoing training. So they maintain that muscle memory if there's long periods of time between their flights. That's Ken Carklin, the CEO of Pivotal, there speaking to me a little earlier on the agenda on Dubai 103.8. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. And we are continuing our conversation now about flying taxis and how we feel about them coming to the skies of the capital by 2026. We've had a lot of comments coming in on 4001. Please do add your voice to the conversation. Uh, 048715500 is the WhatsApp number. Uh, Jana, thank you very much for your message. Jana says she's very excited about this. She loves flying uh, and she thinks she'd really benefit from it because she travels between Abu Dhabi and Dubai every day for work. Meanwhile, uh, Cindy on WhatsApp says, uh, though it might seem promising, I think fares realistically are going to be far too costly and ordinary people like me just wouldn't be able to afford it. Uh, Donald says, uh, this is the UAE. Anything is possible and it'll be a big help to ease the traffic congestion, especially in Dubai. These people have got in touch on the WhatsApp voice message. Have a listen uh, to these comments. I'm actually afraid of heights. That's why I prefer the traditional mode of transportation. But definitely we'll try it for the sake of experiencing it. And I think it's a good move for having these flying taxis because I think it will help ease out the traffic congestion, especially during rush hours. Okay, air taxis. Oh my God. Oh. 
even I cannot imagine it. But you know, it's nice. Um, I think I would rather get it if I, if I don't want to stay in a long queue for a taxi or stuck in a traffic. But um, I'm concerning about the cost of it. It should be very expensive. Actually, I'm very excited. I am very excited to be one of the maybe first to ride the flying taxi. I never imagined in my whole life that to fly on a flying taxi. I believe it's scary, but it will help so many people out there. For example, people who work in Sharjah, it will be much easier for them to travel from Dubai to Sharjah. And um, at the last but not least, it will reduce the traffic in my opinion. I'm actually excited about seeing myself hovering around in one of these flying cars. They are the future of transport and mobility. And uh, witnessing the advancement uh, being made makes me look forward even more to the day we actually see them above our streets. I just urge the companies that are um, developing them to ensure the safety of passengers. I would probably be very scared to get into one. I think that you'd have to find a few daredevils to get into them initially because of people's fear of heights. It would be really interesting to see um, flying taxis uh, flying above us, um, but I would prefer to stay on the ground. <laughs> just a couple more just come in. Uh, Basim says, I think it needs years more for trials. Uh, Pooja on WhatsApp says, it feels like we're going to be on regular helicopter rides super soon. I don't mind using it once it's ready for the public. <laughs> And we're going to continue with our theme of unusual transport and tech stories that are making headlines today because Abu Dhabi is launching what it is calling the world's biggest racing league for self-driving cars. The general gist is that the vehicles will be powered by artificial intelligence and it's hoped that the race will promote driverless technology. Now, the race is called the Abu Dhabi Autonomous Racing League. It's going to be held on April the 28th next year at the Yaz Marina circuit, just like the F1. And running it is the UAE Capital's Advanced Technology Research Council. Now, Thomas McCarthy, who's the executive director of the program development arm of that, uh, it's called Aspire, he joined me a little earlier and he explained who exactly will will be entering the race. Okay, so we're going to have 10 teams from all over the world, from uh, North America, from Europe, uh, from Singapore, from China, and from uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, so the 10 teams will uh, appear on the uh, Yas Marina circuit track as with any other motorsport. The only difference is there won't be a driver in the car. Instead, there's going to be a computer sitting on top of a stack uh, of sensors and cameras and lighter and radar. And all of that information from the cameras and radar and uh, sensors will be fed into the computer. And then the teams have to, to do the software, do the coding that will enable the computer to take account of all of the data and all of the details of the track and race the car effectively and efficiently around the track and against each other. So there is no central control. It's all on the car. So in a normal F1 car, you're going to have the driver using his or her racing skills and you're going to have a team back in race control giving instructions. Here, all that data is in the computer and the coders have to have a sophisticated enough algorithm to process all that information instantaneously 
and drive the car. So there's a drive-by-wire feature in the car and there is all the perception feeding into the computer. So it's not remote control cars, though? They... Abs- absolutely not, no. <laughs> OK, I just wanted to check. Because I'm, I'm imagining, you know, that it's that artificial intelligence component which is making it so clever. You know, the car will be, quote, thinking for itself, so to speak. Absolutely. Indeed, it will. Um, so that, you know, everything gets optimised and the car actually learns as it goes along. It, has, it will have historical data from having done practice runs on the track, but it will update that in real time and make the necessary adjustments in order to get around the track and in order to pass out other cars. I can imagine that these cars are going to be able to go quite a lot faster than human-driven cars, potentially, because there isn't the risk to human life, for example, and we've all been told that machines are more efficient and more effective than, than humans with our foibles and, you know, sore necks. Well, indeed, the only limit on the speed with which the cars go is the engine we put in them and how we tune the engine. The current car we have is a Dallara 23 car that's produced by the iconic uh, um, Italian manufacturer, Dallara, for originally for the Japan Race Promotion Series. We've taken that car and adapted it and put in the autonomous stack. Uh, the speeds on that car are designed to be almost as fast as the Formula One car, just a little bit slower. So the only other uh, car as fast as this racing is the Formula One car. That would be amazing. I mean, what's up for grabs? Is it just um, scientific glory or will there be money? There will be money. So the prize fund for this first race is 2.25 million US dollars uh, to be divided among the winners. So, yeah, it's a big incentive for them. But there is a sense that this is a a project for scientific research as well as a a great watch. It is. I mean, we we think about this as putting three things together, talent, technology and extreme sports. But there's a purpose beyond just the great watch. The purpose is that we want to see the kind of technology enablement from autonomous systems in production cars sooner. Now, we're not talking about cars going around the place without drivers. We're talking about the cars that you and I drive every day. As of now, the cars that we drive can technically do more than we as drivers can accomplish. So imagine you're driving along a motorway and something like an accident occurs in front of you. Now, the car has the capacity to avoid that, but you may not have the capacity as a driver to steer the car to avoid that. By putting in autonomous systems to assist you, it'll be like a Formula One driver is sitting next to you to say, I've got your back or something really uh, serious and catastrophic happens, I'm here to help you and intervene. So it's about bringing the capability of the driver up. Um, Our idea is that if we can demonstrate the capacity of autonomous systems at extreme speeds, that's going to give people confidence to have these systems in their cars. At the moment, they don't have this confidence. For example, we hear a lot of people uh, when they find that lane assist is put in their cars, they get very nervous when lane assist starts jerking the steering wheel. And as a consequence, they turn it off. What we need to do is get the confidence of consumers that, gee, these autonomous systems will assist you and enhance your performance. And if that's the case, manufacturers will be more willing to invest and put them into our cars. That's Thomas McCarthy, the executive director of Aspire, and that's the programme development arm of Abu Dhabi's Advanced Technology Research Council, speaking to me right here on Dubai Eye 103.8. 
This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Going to turn our attention away from the myriad of tech stories making headlines right now because of Jitex to look at something completely different. And it is a local story making headlines right here in the UAE. And it involves the laws and protections around the hiring of domestic workers in the United Arab Emirates. Because four recruitment and domestic worker agencies in Al Ain have been fined 50,000 dirhams and they were actually closed. And that is in the last two weeks. And they have been closed because they were operating illegally. Now, officials at the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratization, who are in charge of this sort of element of the law, actually referred their cases to the public prosecution as well. And these companies are just the latest to be penalised by the government. The Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratization said that 45 have been fined for operating without the necessary licences since 2022. Now, as we all know, literally thousands of uh, Filipino workers in particular make their way to the UAE to find jobs as domestic workers each year. That's thanks to a deal between the UAE and the government. And a little earlier, I caught up with the Labour attaché, John Rio Batista. Now, he heads up the Philippine Overseas Labour Offices in Dubai and the Northern Emirates. And he started by explaining to me a bit of the history of the relationship between the UAE and the Philippines when it comes to domestic workers. We suspended the deployment for almost five years because we would like to include in the employment contract for the domestic workers some important provisions that our government is pushing. And then fortunately, in March of 2021, we had this joint committee meeting with the United Arab Emirates government. And then uh, both parties decided that the important provisions in the contract should be included aside from the comprehensive UAE domestic labor contract. So it paved the way for the resumption of the deployment in March of 2021. And here we are now, 2023. We are guided by the agreement between the UAE and the Philippines and likewise with the laws because it is likewise important that the host government has laws pertaining exclusively to domestic workers as well as the Philippines. We have also regulations in laws. So those two laws of the sending and the receiving country should complement and would result to the giving of protection and promoting the welfare of our domestic workers. Can I ask you to give me a few more details of the new laws that were introduced in order to allow Filipinos to travel once again from their home country to work here in the UAE? Just just a, a broad outline. First and foremost would be the recognition of the UAE government that indeed the Philippine government has a part in the deployment of our domestic workers. That's why we have this agreement with them. This is a memorandum of understanding with the UAE government. And likewise, in recognition of our participation, they allow us to verify the employment contract of our domestic workers. This is a very important measure wherein all domestic workers, before they will be deployed from the Philippines and to work with any household employer here in the UAE, all their employment contracts should pass through us. And even prior to that, only licensed recruitment agencies identified by the Tadbir agencies here in the UAE should be part of the deployment of domestic workers. And we have this process of accreditation 
and uh, verification of employment documents. I think that is the key in resolving the previous issue as far as the deployment of domestic workers. Is your sense that these changes have indeed brought enough protections for citizens from the Philippines who are working as domestic workers? Yes, definitely. Again, likewise, this is a joint effort of the UAE government, particularly the MORE. And likewise, the Department of Migrant Workers, our Philippine department, in charge of the deployment of uh, Filipino workers. So we are working hand in hand. We have this monthly report tomorrow as to the number of deployed domestic workers, how many have we approved for the demand. And likewise, the accreditation of Philippine recruitment agencies. If I may share, we have now for Dubai only and Northern Emirates, More has accredited uh, 63 Tadbir centers. uh, And uh, they are likewise keen on monitoring the activities of these Tadbir centers. Recently, More announced that they have revoked the license of two Tadbir centers for violations. And likewise... We are doing the same. We are monitoring their activities and reporting also the illegal activities or violations of Philippine recruitment agencies involved in the deployment. So we have to put likewise a measure to punish those violating and likewise giving rewards to those complying with the regulations. Sometimes do Filipinos fall through the net, perhaps because they don't go through the official channels and attempts to find work outside those official channels. Yeah, admittedly, as often as UAE, as we see it, we encounter problems involving Filipino domestic workers hired through the illegal channels. They were lured to workers as domestic workers through TikTok, Facebook. And we at the Migrant Workers Office are likewise maintaining a shelter an accommodation for our distressed Filipino workers. And almost 90% of those in our shelters are from cross-country, meaning either coming from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or even from Asia. They were hired through an illegal recruiter through the online recruitment. So that's why we are giving advisories. We are giving uh, warnings to our kababayans that uh, they should only pass through the licensed Philippine recruitment agencies in the Tadbir centers accredited by More. If someone is listening to this now and they're either from the Philippines or they know a, a Filipino domestic worker who is in a difficult situation, maybe they feel that their employer is unfair and they want to get out of that situation. And I know that, you know, like many of us, domestic workers have year-long contracts and so they might feel restricted by that contract to get help. What would be your recommendation? The UAE government as well as the Philippine government is one on this and giving protection to our domestic workers and, and providing likewise assistance in case of need. So even here on site, Filipino domestic workers, if they have complaints against their employers, they can file their case before the MORE. That is the institution uh, in charge of protecting them here, provided by the UA government. And likewise, they can seek assistance from us, from the Migrant Workers Office. We are now handling the assistance to nationals. 
So any legal advice, any medical, so we will be happily providing to them the needed assistance. And we will call the attention of Tadbir Centers. We will likewise call the attention of the Philippine recruitment agencies to address every concern of our domestic workers. If I may add that, prior to the resumption of the deployment of domestic workers here in UAE, in our shelters, we are maintaining in the average 200 to 300 distressed Filipino workers and mostly domestic workers. But upon resumption of the legal deployment channel, it's uh, a good news. And fortunately, we only have on the average 15, 15 Filipinos in distress, meaning the resumption of the legal channel is very effective because we are now partnering with the legal entities here, which are the Tadbir Centers, and we are likewise coordinating with the government authorities here, which is the MORE. That's Labour attaché John Rio Batista, who heads up the Philippine Overseas Labour Offices in Dubai and the Northern Emirates. And uh, just worth mentioning that the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratization says that if anyone has come across illegal practices in this category, uh, then they should get in touch with their official channels or you can get in touch with them via the call centre. And the number for that is 600-590-000. That's 600-590 and then triple zero. Hello there, welcome back to The Agenda. And we are discussing the laws and protections around the hiring of domestic workers here in the UAE. That is after the authorities closed four recruitment and domestic worker agencies in Al Ain just over the last two weeks. Now, it was the Ministry of Human Resources and Emiratization who undertook those steps. They also, uh, officials there also fined them 50,000 dirhams each and referred their cases to the public prosecution. Now, they are just the latest companies to be penalised by the government. So far, 45 have been fined for operating without the necessary licences. And that's literally just since 2022. But let's find out a little bit more about the laws protecting domestic workers here in the UAE. I'm going to be joined now by Ali Al-Assad. He is a Middle East employment lawyer for Denton's Middle East. Uh, worth mentioning that if you've got any questions for him, please do get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp us on 04871 But Ali, first up, tell me, are the laws governing domestic workers, are the labour laws governing domestic workers, are they different to normal employees? For the domestic helpers, basically, there's a different uh, set of law and regulation that apply to them. There's a federal law, it's followed by an executive regulation that set out the rights and obligation of both parties of the relationship, the employer and the domestic worker as well. And therefore, they are subject to a different set of rules if you compare them to any other employee who work for the private sector. Some of the rights are quite similar, but we cannot say that they are exactly the same. Okay, so so under those laws, what specific protections do domestic workers have? The main protections we have are like the limitation in terms of the working hours, the daily rest, the weekly rest, the annual leave, and also the right to approach the Ministry of Labour to file any complaint in the event there is any breach from the side of the employer or from the side of the agent or in the event there is any violation towards the rights of the uh, worker, or for example, if there is any kind of uh, 
bad treatment or uh, abuse, all of that can be reported to the ministry. And from there, that any other employee, there is an employment complaint that will be filed if the parties doesn't settle it. They have the right to refer to the courts. On the other side, also, if there is any violation that qualify as a crime, as any other party in the society, the uh, worker has the right to approach the police and file a criminal complaint. How about the way in which domestic workers are hired? Because I understand that the rules there have changed recently. Yeah, there is two types of recruitment here. There is some agency, that, for example, they hire somebody to you by name, like the labor or the worker will be specified in name. And this individual will work for you exclusively. This is one set. The other set is like certain service providers. They have workers already under their sponsorship and they can lend it or, for example, allocate it to a certain employer. And later on, if there is any dispute, for example, with the labor, the labor can be replaced by another one from the same agent. While under the first arrangement we spoke about, it's just they work as a recruiter. So they find you somebody, they work for with you. If there's a dispute, then you terminate the relationship and you hire somebody from you. So at the moment, if you want to go out and hire a, a nanny or a housekeeper or a domestic worker, mm-hmm. are you required to go through these agencies, the, the Tadbir agencies, or can you still hire people personally? Our understanding is it has to happen through these Tadbir offices or whoever similar. Maybe no that's worries. something you need to cut from the recording. So as it stands, what protections do the nannies, what protection do the domestic workers have as far as holidays, as far as hours they have to work, all of those types of rules and regulations? Yeah, so basically under the law we started conversation with, they are entitled to 30 days of annual leave per year. They are entitled to 12 hours of break per day. Out of these 12 hours, eight hours must be consecutive. So the worker will have 12 hours of off per day Eight of them has to be consecutive and the other four hours can be like spread across the day and one day off per week as well. And how about the frequency with which they're able to go back to their home countries? Basically, they are entitled to annual leave every year. But if they would like to travel home, they will be given a ticket every two years. And can I ask, I mean, obviously, you work for a major Middle Eastern law firm, so it's unlikely that many individual domestic workers have sort of crossed your path unless maybe you were doing pro bono work for example but but do you know whether very many domestic workers have used this law or used the protections afforded by this law in order to leave their employers and and get out of a difficult situation we came across situations where the domestic workers approached the authorities approached the ministry of labor to file a complaint for example to transfer from an employer to another We've seen certain scenarios, but uh, as you mentioned, as a law firm, we don't come across these cases that often. But yes, it's happening. Like we, We've heard a couple of cases where these individuals approached the authorities to solve their problem and they were provided the required assistance, either by mediating the dispute or by referring the matter to the court. Ali Al-Assad, their Middle East employment lawyer for Denton's Middle East. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
Hello there. Yeah, we are continuing our conversation here on the agenda about the laws and protections around the hiring of domestic workers here in the UAE. That is after the authorities say they closed four recruitment and domestic worker agencies in Al Ain over the last two weeks alone. We're getting loads of questions on the text lines on this topic. Uh, Please do add yours if you've got anything you'd like to ask because we've kept our expert, uh, the employment lawyer Ali Al-Assad from Denton's Middle East in the studio with us so that he can answer some of your questions. And this one's just come in. Ahmed says, my cousin works as a domestic helper with a European family in Ras al-Khaimah. Unfortunately, she's only allowed to get one day off per month. How can she negotiate this situation with her employer? I mean, that just sounds illegal, doesn't it? Yeah, here basically, if the as the worker is being prevented from enjoying their leave as per the law, they have the right to approach the authorities and file the complaint. If, for example, like an amicable discussion with the employer won't solve it, they have the right to approach the Ministry of Labor. But my main concern here is that a lot of these workers, especially if somebody is new to the country, somebody who doesn't speak uh, a lot of English or Arabic, practically it might be complicated for them to go out of the house reach the authorities, speak with them, and file their complaint. That might be a practical issue that some individuals may get stuck in. Yes, I can imagine if if Arabic or English isn't your first language, then it can be very Mm. difficult indeed. Mm. We've had, um, this is an anonymous message that's come through on 4001 saying, I'm a nanny in Dubai and I've been here nearly eight months, but my employer doesn't give me a day off. They have my passport and I don't have a copy of my labor contract. And uh, sometimes they're making up stories that I'm taking things for, from them. Um, what steps can I take? Oh, that sounds awful. This person's clearly in a very difficult situation. What can they do? Indeed. So in this situation, like I would not recommend for this individual to stay with the family because if they made claims that she's taking stuff, maybe it's just a matter of time until they go and report her to the police saying that she stole something. So what we recommend is to reach out to the Ministry of Labour either through their uh, call center or via, if they, if you can physically reach them, that will be awesome. If not, online or through their call center to file the complaint. Okay, gosh, there's so many questions coming in. I've got Leila here who says, I'm very lucky. I have French employers and I've been working for them for the past eight years. I'm thinking of retiring. Can I expect end of service benefits when I decide to retire? Yes, the domestic workers are eligible to end of service. One more here. It says, I've been, I'm working as a nanny and I've been unwell for a couple of days now, but I can't go to the hospital or clinic because I don't have health insurance. I don't want to spend from my own pocket, but my employer says they won't help. I thought domestic workers had to have health insurance as part of their contract. If the employer is the sponsor, they must provide uh, the medical insurance. And even if they if they are not the sponsor and the agency is not providing medical insurance, the employer has to cover. So in that situation, they should complain to the ministry. Yes, they can complain to the ministry because basically any individual who have a work contract in Dubai must be provided insurance by the employer. If the employer fails to provide this insurance, basically they will be liable for the medical bills. Ali Al-Assad, thank you so much for taking those questions. Uh, There's still loads coming in, uh, so it might be that we have to cover this subject once again right here on the agenda on Dubai 103.8. But Ali Al-Assad, employment lawyer with Denton's Middle East, thank you very much indeed for your time.
The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.